for Pacifica Radio, August 31st, 2023. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com and author of the book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost 6,000 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org, at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow, and all the other video channel sites and stuff. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare. I'm still calling it Twitter, because I think X is stupid. Follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at Scott Horton Show. And sorry in advance for some of this stuff. Okay, welcoming back to the show, it's Bronco Marchteach from Jacobin. And uh, also he's got one here at the uh, Quincy Institute website that we want to talk about. But this one's at Jacobin. Imran Khan's ouster is a story of U.S. power and propaganda. Welcome back to the show, Bronco. How you doing, sir? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. I also agree, by the way, that X is a terrible name. That thing is so stupid. Everybody has to call it X, you know, the site that was renamed from Twitter the other day. I read that in a news story this morning. Just call it Twitter. Things no, I'm not I'm not going along with it. I'm I'm just sticking with Twitter. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm sticking with you, man, because you're so smart and write such great stuff all the time. Who's Imran Khan and why should I care? Uh, well, Imran Khan was a, a very famous cricketer, sort of known as a as a playboy for a very long time. Um, and uh, some years back, uh, I mean, he he was very critical of the Pakistani government, very critical uh, of the the U.S. government's involvement in Pakistan and sort of um, you know intertwining with uh, the Pakistani military and, and spy services. Ended up running for president, uh, won. Um, and, you know, didn't have a particularly uh, successful presidency, but uh, ultimately was sort of uh, deposed a, a couple of years ago in a, um, a, a, a no-confidence vote. And, and he claimed for a long time that this was, you know, part of a U.S. plot to get rid of him, that, that because he had posed certain U.S. policies, most notably the um, uh, use of Pakistan basically as a, as a base from which to uh, drone bomb, uh, uh, you know, neighboring countries. Because of this, the U.S. got rid of them. There's been kind of a, a over year long political crisis over this, and a lot of people have kind of poo pooed his uh, his claim. Um, but you know, certain information has has come to light to <laughs> to quote the Big Lebowski, um, and and it makes Khan's claim a lot more credible now. Mm-hmm. All right, so you know, first of all, it's really interesting because. Um, you know, I don't know, anytime there's something like this, especially a guy like Khan who had denounced America's war in Afghanistan and refused to let, uh, you know, Trump or Biden have a drone base to attack Afghanistan and all this stuff. You can see him get overthrown. You just assume that America had something to do with it, you know, without knowing. But it was interesting because there are quite a few reports that said, no, this really is just domestic. And, you know, I travel around so much. Uh, I kept meeting Pakistani cab drivers, and they were totally divided on this. Uh, Pakistani-American cab drivers who'd say, oh, yeah, no, it's definitely a CIA plot, or, oh, no way, everybody hates this guy. In fact, I even had one guy really liked Khan and said, still, it wasn't the Americans. It was, you know, he has all these domestic enemies who are constantly out for blood, and they had their chance or whatever. But now we know about American intervention in his overthrow. So please help clarify and set us straight, Bronco March Teach. 
I mean, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I think sometimes uh, we in, in, in the United States and the West can kind of overstate U.S. involvement and, and U.S. power, or at least its ability to, to influence events in, in other countries. And so I think, at least by what has come out so far, it, it's probably a little much, as, as Khan's been saying, to say this was a U.S. plot, you know, from the beginning of the no-confidence vote was just orchestrated by the United States to get rid of him. It does seem like very much... As, as those uh, cab drivers were, were telling you that, that he did have a lot of political enemies. He pissed off the military and, and the, you know, the, the spy services over there. Um, and that was kind of the thing that, that led to the vote. But the thing is, what, what this diplomatic cable that came out that was leaked to The Intercept, which Khan, by the way, had been saying existed. He, he's saying this, I had this, have this cable that shows that U.S. is involved. He said this for, for over a year. Uh, and people just said, you know, he's he's making it up. Um, but it was leaked to the intercept, and it shows that, okay, maybe the United States did not orchestrate this no-confidence vote. But when the no-confidence vote was uh, set to, to to be held, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a done deal that, that, that he was going to get ousted in it. And basically, the U.S. State Department made what you might call, uh, you know, a sort of mob boss-like, threat or suggestion, you know, whatever term you want to use, to Pakistan basically saying, look, we have this war in Ukraine happening. We want to rally the world against Russia. Imran Khan decided to travel to Russia uh, on the day of the invasion and generally has taken this neutral stance, which is impossible to do. If he remains the prime minister, then, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, it's going to get tough for Pakistan. Pakistan will be isolated on the world stage. They'll be isolated from us. And certainly Europe will probably feel the same. However, uh, if, if he is gotten rid of, then I believe the quote was, all will be forgiven. Um, and ultimately he was, he was ousted. And I think that's actually a very good illustration of, of the way that the U.S. uses its power or the U.S. government uses its power on the world stage. It's not necessarily always to orchestrate things, although obviously that happens too. But it's also uh, taking advantage of domestic instability and in, in situations that are cropping up in these countries and then sort of using its power, using its weight to, to tip the scales in, in a direction that it, you know the government views as serving its interests. Mm-hmm. It's Bronco March Teach from Jacobin. We're talking about his piece about uh, the overthrow of Imran Khan in Pakistan here. Um, you know, whenever a critic talks about American intervention in other countries' elections or political processes or coup d'etats. The defense is always, oh, yeah, well, you're denying the agency of the people on the ground there. Obviously, the parliament of Pakistan, they're the ones who called the shot, but obviously America is the world empire and told them which shot to call. So somehow this is supposed to make it deniable or something that they're having their way when... It doesn't seem deniable to me at all. It seems like, you know, the barest of alibis really is all. Well, and I mean, look, uh, I've heard this claim before that, you know, oh, the, the U.S. role here didn't matter at all. or You know, this wasn't that big a deal. Well, OK, if, if you think so, um, it seems like the State Department and the entire U.S. government disagree because they did not say, yeah, well, you know, we, we expressed our uh, uh, opinion about what we would like the outcome to be. Um, but ultimately, you know, we didn't have that much of a role. No, they strenuously denied that they had any role. And they said, we have no position on who is the ruler of Pakistan. Uh, and ultimately, that was proven untrue. 
by documentary evidence. So, I mean, the fact that, that the U.S. government itself goes out of the way to, to you know, issue this maximalist denial of its involvement to me makes it completely absurd that, that the U.S. had no role. And, and I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the, the United States is the most powerful government in the entire world. Uh, it has a massive military. It, it doles out aid, both both military aid and humanitarian aid to countries. It obviously has uh, great sway in terms of what's able to convince other governments to do. It is ridiculous this idea that that you know that that has become popular now when people talk about agency. This idea that the United States is as the hegemonic power of the globe simply has no impact on anything that happens in the rest of the world uh, right. if it decides to weigh in either behind the scenes or, or publicly. It, it doesn't even um, accord with what people who are you know usually interventionists, military in- interventionists, who want the U.S. To, to throw its weight around more for the sake of you know hum- humanitarian concerns, um, they're constantly asking the United States to make statements, to, to issue public proclamations, condemnations, so on and so forth, because they know that even when the United States doesn't act- actively intervene or, or is not yet at that stage, uh, its words carry a lot of weight and carry a lot of influence. So I, you know, this idea is just completely absurd. But I can see why people who want to minimize uh, the role that that the U.S. government has in kind of uh, uh, influencing events in countries internal politics, I can see why they would want to take up this argument, as ridiculous as it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm Scott Horton. It's Anti-War Radio here on KPFK. I'm talking with Bronco Marchteach from Jacobin Magazine about America's role in the overthrow of the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. Yeah, no, exactly right. Bronco, the narrative is America is number one. USA, the world superpower. But it's not like America acts in the world. And if you say that it does, then you're a conspiracy kook. And you have quite a catalog in your article here of these different press statements basically ridiculing anyone who would suspect that the Americans would let it be known that they would like to see this guy unmade prime minister in Pakistan. Yeah, absolutely. I, I went back and, and I wanted to read some of the, the coverage about Khan's claims because I was interested, you know, with the, the, the claim conspiracy theory or misinformation, disinformation, fake news, all that stuff. It's it's so uh, pervasive now and it's all used to, to justify censoring usually independent media. Um, so here we go. Here's a thing that was widely called a conspiracy theory uh, and widely called fake. And yeah, I, I, that's that's exactly what a litany of commentators um, then and and now called it. They said, you know, look, oh, he keeps saying he has this diplomatic cable, but he won't show it to us. Um, some people even saw the diplomatic cable and they said, well, but it doesn't, doesn't prove anything, which <laughs> itself is interesting. Um, some people went through the timeline of events and they said, there's no way that uh, even, even if the U.S. had said anything, uh, that uh, uh, Khan's trip to Moscow had anything to do with it. If you look at the timeline, it just doesn't make sense. And, and these were all very credentialed, very, quote-unquote, serious commentators writing in the pages of the most influential newspapers and magazines, usually considered by people who censor things, kind of, quote-unquote, authoritative sources. Uh, and look, I mean, I was careful around the story. I did not want to jump to conclusions that, that did not have the evidence for them yet. And I mean, uh, I think that was prudent. But, you know, I... 
how am I at that point going to rule out that there's any U.S. involvement? I mean, Khan was saying it. There was nothing, you know, there was not enough evidence out there to say one way or the other. And given what we know about not just the history of the U.S.'s involvement in Pakistan, but also, I mean, you know, do I have to go through the, the long history of U.S. Um, attempts to, to foment unrest and, 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 and sponsoring coups and, uh, you know, just outright regime change operations in other countries? Sometimes uh, open, sometimes secret, and sometimes taking years to actually come out. Um, given that history that, you know, any actual, I think, serious commentator should be pretty familiar with, I'm not going to stand out here and say, no, there's no way this could have happened. And of course, all these people um, were completely wrong. And the sad thing is that they'll, you know, I don't think it'll change a single thing. I think the next time something like this happens, you'll you'll get the same exact rushing to conclusions. No one will have learned anything. There'll be no consequences whatsoever um and the, but that's that's the the nature of the beast i guess yeah exactly right all right it's anti-war radio i'm scott horton talking with bronco march teach from jacobin.com and this one is called imran khan's ouster is the story of u.s power and propaganda and i like this one in haaretz hamza azar salam called this conspiracy theory anti-semitic even though <sighs> You say in here in parentheses, the latter was never explained. Were there any Jews in the story at all? Are they no, just they like were. throwing things around? Go ahead and call you a flat earth guy as long <laughs> as they're at it, right? I, I read that piece a few times because I could not wrap around my head how it was anti-Semitic. I think this is the tenuous connection. I believe it was because um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the United States exist. Therefore, to say that the United States had a role in, in getting rid of Khan was also to say that the, the Jews did. And that seemed to be the argument. Very, um, very much of a stretch. Seriously. And look, I mean, even on the basic conspiracy theory level, if your conspiracy theory is about an intelligence agency engaging in covert action in the interests of the nation state that it, you know, purports to work for, I'm willing to listen, you know? It's not yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I mean that I, is their job after all, you know? No, no, for sure. I mean, look, obviously there's a lot of ridiculous conspiracy theories out there, but but conspiracies do exist. Those are real. Uh, I mean, you know, MKUltra was, was a conspiracy. It was covered up for a long time. It may not have even seen the light of day if it was not for, uh, you know, accidentally um, finding some documents in, in, in a box one day. Um, the, the Iraq war, the, 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 the lead up to the Iraq war, that was a conspiracy. It was a very high level conspiracy to lie the country into a war. And I mean, you, you know, you could go down the list. So conspiracies do exist. Um, uh, it, it's not always, usually they're kind of banal as, as this one is. It's just wanting to get rid of one leader who is viewed as unhelpful to another powerful country's interests. Um, but it's it's a bit ridiculous to say that, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, this could never have happened. Uh, that to me, actually, that's just as irresponsible and, and, and unserious as, you know, the people who immediately point to everything as a kind of, you know, Western conspiracy. Yeah, exactly right. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. 
Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get all the war lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. And uh, as you said, when the story came out, you said, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Looks like maybe domestic thing, but couldn't possibly rule it out. How could you rule it out? Same thing here. I talked with Ted Snyder. I go, I don't know, Ted. America does like overthrowing other people's governments a lot. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, in this case, we're just waiting on data. Right. Why jump to conclusions? We don't really know. But the idea that we would rule it out and say, oh, no, it's crazy. America would never do such a thing. I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody in the audience right now who is counting off on their fingers how many times America has overthrown the government of Pakistan just in the post-war era. Yeah, I mean, it took a long time to get, uh, you know, a a few years at least to get official confirmation of the U.S. role in uh, the overthrow of Allende in Chile. Uh, that that was not immediately. I think it was suspected, but it we was just not had some new docs the other day, actually, on antiwar.com. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, look, I think uh, what's kind of interesting about this is I think it shows you the way that kind of power and propaganda uh, uh, reinforce each other, as as the headline kind of makes clear. Because on the one, you know, you have the U.S. behind the scenes um, putting its thumb on the scales to to get rid of Khan, who would see whose neutrality in uh, the Ukraine war, it sees as unhelpful. And then what happens is um, there is a sort of platoon of, you know, again, quote unquote, serious commentators, people with credentials, people with uh, years of experience working in, in governments and official circles, uh, who uh, I, I think for a variety of reasons, one, because um, they naturally identify with power um, and the people in power, Number two, because of the desire to be seen as serious and, and what that means and often, sadly, in journalism is to basically take the side of uh, the particular government you're working under. Um, and, and they all come through. I don't think there's any memo that went through, but they all um, uh, uh, of their own accord come out and say, no, this is a fantasy. This is all fake. Don't listen to this completely untrue uh, and anyone who says it is a conspiracy theorist and a liar and immediately that ends up setting the kind of boundaries for uh, a debate on the subject uh, now because all these very important authoritative newspapers and such have, have said this it it means it closes off the possibility for other commentators who maybe are not as secure in their careers or in their public standing to uh, counter that because they could fear some sort of career repercussions or uh, reputational uh, damage, so on and so forth. And so I think, you know, beyond everything else that we've talked about, I think the this episode is kind of an interesting case study in, in the way that um, the, the U.S. media and political infrastructure kind of works to 
to just narrow debate to a very small uh, uh, spectrum. Mm-hmm. All right. It's Anti-War Radio. I'm Scott Horton talking with Bronco March Teach. This one is at Responsible Statecraft. If we could spend a few minutes here on Ukraine. Are U.S. officials signaling a new forever war in Ukraine, reads the headline. And this is, I guess, your take on where are we now after the failed summer offensive? That's correct. And actually, there's been some more developments to this story, because I think maybe the the week after this came out, uh, there was a David Ignatius uh, piece for the Washington Post, and he's a very well-connected person in Washington, basically kind of tells you what the the elite are thinking and, and saying. And he says across all levels of the U.S. government, um, the consensus is now that this war is going to go on for another year, um, if not longer, because, quote, you know, the U.S. cannot be seen to abandon an ally. So it's to me, this is, uh, number one, obviously, it's not a good thing for anyone, least of all Ukrainians themselves, for this war to continue, a war that already has sent uh, amputation statistics in Ukraine um, to the heights of the First World War, which is crazy. But beyond that, it's not good for the world, because the longer this thing goes on, the more chances there are for something stupid and dangerous and you know a misunderstanding to happen that, that that triggers something much more catastrophic than what we're seeing and beyond everything else the u.s just continues to move the goalposts to shift what its lines are it's done that repeatedly on the weapons transfers it's now done that on the timing of the war because last year the war was meant to end after this offensive now it's going to go until the next offensive and so the question is, is there at any point going to be a time where any, I mean, next year is an election year. Is anyone going to be satisfied in the next two years with having this thing wind up? Or is it going to be like every other U.S. military intervention when the ambitions get bigger, the goalposts move, and we constantly shift around our definition of, of victory and acceptable um, uh, uh, withdrawal until the war just goes on and on and on. So that's basically the the thrust of the piece. Yeah, but Bronco, I've been told repeatedly that Russia, far from being the second most powerful military on the planet after ours, they're only the second most powerful military in Ukraine. And that total victory is imminent. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the Russian military underperformed uh, and made a bunch of mistakes. And people who are much... Uh, smarter and, and better versed in military strategy have written about those mistakes. But it seems to me pretty clear at this point that what happened was these mistakes and these errors led to a a wild overestimation, number one, of, of Ukrainian military's hopes for success, for, for, for military success against Russia. And then number two, a, a kind of uh, underestimation of what the Russian military was capable of. That didn't really look at the facts of the ground, but sort of was tied up in, in this kind of emotional fervor that, that you know, understandably followed the invasion. But it, what that's meant is that we, we just have been presented with and kind of been living in a bit of a fantasy world for the past year and a half, where we keep being told all these things by people. And it turns out to be mostly just wishful thinking. It's not even really necessarily based on the military realities. And what it's done is it's it's meant that not only is 
uh, the option of ceasefire or just even diplomacy to end the war considered wrong and unacceptable. It's been banished sort of from, from public discourse for the most part because people go, well, hold on, Ukraine's going to win. So why would we want to do that? We don't want to hobble their impending military victory. Right. Um, but the other thing is I think it's kind of uh, encouraged the Ukrainian political and military leadership to take extra risks and to overinflate their their military ambitions instead of kind of, you know, there was a chance last year after that counteroffensive that, that managed to uh, push the Russians back. That would have been a very good time to uh, sue for peace. Uh, Ukraine had the kind of upper hand in negotiations that the West kept saying that this was this is what the aim of the the, the war was to get Ukraine to that position. But what happened was Ukrainian uh, political leadership said, well, no, we're actually not going to go into talks now because we think we can we can get more. We're going to go further. And everyone shared that. No one was really able to say anything about, you know, hey, hold on, is this a good idea? Is this actually feasible? And what have we seen? I mean, first there was the absolute slaughter in Bakhmut, and now this counteroffensive. God knows how many people have lost their lives there, but um, I, I don't think it's been pretty. Um, I think the uh, New York Times, or at least the U.S. officials through New York Times, put the toll death toll at, at half a million, or sorry, ca- casually told. But that's that's a horrific number, especially over just a year and a half. And, and obviously, you know, half of that is the Ukrainian number. So yeah. um, I think, yeah, sadly, we've all been led astray by some very, very bad commentary and some, I think, poor leadership. Yeah, for sure. It was so clear last fall when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, hey, great job there in Kursan and Kharkiv. You boys ought to go to the table now while you're only this far behind and not worse. And Joe Biden, the president of the United States, let Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken win that argument and told the Ukrainians, don't listen to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Jake Sullivan knows what to do. And yeah. so here they are. They lost another, you know, 50,000 guys or whatever the number is, and they achieved absolutely nothing for it. Well, and and don't forget, uh, that that's all totally fine because as as people like Lindsey Graham and, and, and others keep reminding us, all these think tank people, uh, well, it's it's not Americans dying. This is actually great bang for, for the buck for, for right. the United States government. It's, it's just Ukrainian uh, uh, people dying. And they'll fight to the end, even though, you know, we have reports and we've had reports that people are trying desperately to avoid conscription this entire time because right. they understandably don't want to fight and get killed for nothing. Yeah, in other but words, no, this no. is a slave army. These boys that are getting blown to bits, they've been drafted at gunpoint, forced to fight. Exactly. I mean, and just like the Russians. And the thing is that we understand that when it comes to the Russian military, that, that Putin has, has basically is forcing all these people to fight. But we have been given this image of Ukraine as this kind of nation of willing cannon fodder, these people who will, no matter what, no matter how many limbs they lose, no matter how much, how much family dies, that they'll just keep fighting forever and ever and ever. And that's not true. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the sad thing is there was a piece in Politico recently where some U S official, you mentioned that thing about Millie, uh, uh, earlier this year when he said, Hey, now, or, or late last year when he said, Hey, now's a good time maybe to, to push for negotiations. And as you correctly say, all these civilian officials, including the country's top diplomat, 
um, if you can even call him that, Antony Blinken said, no, 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 that would be wrong. We should keep pushing. Uh, and now this unnamed U.S. official tells Politico, yeah, actually, whoops, we, we may have missed the boat on that. Yeah, we probably should listen to Millie. Oh, well, um, you know, what's a, what's a 100,000 or so Ukrainian lives? Well, uh, look, Bronco, I mean, you know, Danny Davis said on the show, look, they could lose Kharkiv back again now. They could lose Odessa. They should have just implemented Minsk, too. <laughs> they should have sworn not to join NATO. They should have negotiated their way out of this war in the first place. But Well, well, the irony is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, um, I don't know if, if people generally are, that, that there were serious talks going on from the very beginning of the war. We have this from numerous sources that they were actually bearing fruit. And what happened, we have also been told by multiple sources that Basically, the the United States and Great Britain uh, did not want the war to end, and and the reason why I think, I mean, if you go back and read coverage of this from from you know, from the war's start, basically, it, it's they say it outright. There was a New York Times piece about this that that the U.S. goal um, once Russia invaded was to uh, uh, create a quagmire to trap Russia into its own Afghanistan, or at least you know its its second Afghanistan. And to sort of bleed the country that way, if not even um, uh, uh, lead to regime change. And ultimately, you know, they, they got exactly what they wanted because that may be what ends up happening. Certainly it looks like it from now. But I think we're all realizing a year and a half into this that that is a horrific outcome, uh, turning this thing into a permanent war. Uh, uh, with all its nuclear risks and all the risks of instability, internal instability in Russia, um, it's 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 mind-boggling that this is what they were kind of uh, hoping for from the beginning. And now, um, you know, they're the proverbial dog that caught the car. They 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 have it, and they, it turns out actually they don't really want anything to do with it. But it's 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 too late to 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 get out. All right, you guys, and I'm sorry we're all out of time, but that is Bronco March Teach. Here he is at Jacobin.com. Imran Khan's ouster is a story of U.S. power and propaganda, and this one is at Responsible Statecraft. Are U.S. officials signaling a new forever war in Ukraine? Thank you very much for your time, Bronco. Great to talk to you. Cheers, man. All right, you guys, and that is it for Anti-War Radio for today. I'm Scott Horton. Find the full interview archive at scotthorton.org. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And I am here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.